Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight. I also host the podcast Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books, which you can listen to if you need your literary fix fast. This podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight, is for anyone out there who wants to feel better in their bodies like I do. There's a private support group that I started on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight. And all of us share tips, suggestions, recipes, meal ideas, and generally just give each other lots and lots and lots of support so that it isn't so hard to do what should be simple, but somehow isn't. So please listen to the podcast, hear stories from people just like you who have struggled and overcome things and have ideas and suggestions. And let's just do this together. We got this. Thanks for listening. Alison Gerber is the author of Taking Up Space. She's also the critically acclaimed Own Voices novel writer of Braced, Focused, and Taking Up Space, published by Scholastic. She has an MFA from the New School in Writing for Children and lives in New York City with her family. Follow her on Twitter and Instagram at Allison Gerber. Allison with a Y, by the way. Welcome, Allison. Thanks so much for talking to me today about Taking Up Space, Play by Your Own Rules. Congratulations on your book. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Okay. Can you tell everybody what your book is about and what inspired you to write it? That's not you, by the way, on the cover, right? Some Somebody much younger. Okay. All yeah. right. <laughs> so Space is a book about a seventh grade basketball player whose name's Sarah. And she is struggling to feel good about her body and herself. She's going through puberty, so her body's changing. And she's always identified as a basketball player. It's really important to her to her identity, it's really important to her family. Basketball is a big part of the way that her she connects with her family. But it's based on my struggles with disordered eating, body dysmorphia, and really self-worth. It's really a book about how we learn to value ourselves and how that changes as we change. And that's not just for puberty. I mean, you're, you change throughout your life in all different ways as your identity shifts. And some points in your life that's bigger, maybe when you get married, maybe when you have kids, the way that you see yourself changes. But during puberty, it's the, really the first time our bodies are changing, friendships are changing around those body changes and around those sort of maturity changes. And this book is really about a girl who is living in a house where food is complicated. So her mom has a complicated relationship with food, her dad doesn't really register that there's a problem. And so he becomes an enabler. And it's really, to me, this book, I, one of the things I wanted to communicate in this book is that there needs to be a conversation between adults and kids about what's happening with food. Because right now, 50% of kids eight and up are want to be thinner. And that is a problem. I shouldn't even say this, but like one of my kids wrote on their whiteboard, like, I will not eat sweets from this time to this time every day. And I was like, what? I saw this morning. And I was like, what do you, why is this up here? What are you talking about? You know? And this child was like, well, I don't want to be fat. And I was, oh my God. Anyway, this is like my 5 a.m. by the way. I'm like, like, okay. Like, you know, I I feel like, well, anyway, this is another conversation. Long first of the day. (laughs) So this is like my theme du jour here. It like breaks my heart. It broke my heart. I was like, and I literally was like, where is this coming from? Did someone say something to you? Are you getting this from school? Like, where is this coming from? Anyway, it's like so pervasive. And it, anyway. The truth is that it's coming from everywhere. It's diet. We live in a diet culture. We've lived in a diet culture since the 1800s. 
I mean, to the early 1800s. And so it's literally rooted in, it's systemic. But I, and so- I try so hard. I'm like, this is my role as a mom is to like not mess up my kids and they're eating, you know? Like I try so hard. I do all the things. I never say like, I hate how I look today. Like no matter how, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know, but it, somehow it still happens. <laughs> no, I mean, that's... I love that that's how you see your role. I think that I wish every parent could see their role that way to like make sure their kids feel good about food and good about themselves, no matter what. I think it's a really important job. And it's really hard when you're fighting an uphill battle against diet culture. What I ended up saying to her too is like, because, you know, there is no issue, right? At all. Like, and I was just, and I'm like, some, like everybody's bodies are different, A, but like, strength doesn't come from skinniness. Do you know what I mean? Like if you want to be strong and you're an athlete and like your body needs space for like you have, like there are different roles for our bodies. Like why would you want to be like a wimpy, like see that as wimpiness, not something to covet, right? Like we should do a lot with our bodies. So I don't know. Anyway, not that I've mastered anything either. No, yeah, it's really it's a really hard struggle. It's a really hard push and pull because we have a society that values weight and size and shape over actual well-being and actual value. Like, why are we not valuing resilience and being capable and critical and thoughtful and kind? Like, those are the qualities that we that I'm sure you are instilling in your kids. And you're like, let's let those ones outweigh this other thing. Just another reminder that as parents, you basically have no control. <laughs> you, you have no control as parents, by the way. Yeah, none. Uh, uh, which is why I think I was so horrified by the mother in this book. Because first of all, the idea of like not remembering, A, not remembering to like feed a child dinner. Okay, fine. Maybe once. I mean, I've never done that, but let's just say you could almost excuse, you could excuse a parent for that. But the intentionality behind it and the mother's own eating disorder and her hiding food behind like in the cabinet by the TV and like on all these places. And the one scene where she was like eating the candies, like in the kitchen and then like ran out and how she doesn't allow herself to eat. And like all the messaging that her daughter gets about like, is this on the list? And then is this on my coach's list of healthy food? And you know, what is okay? And and you see her like wasting away. And I just keep looking at this mother being like, when is she going to wake up in this book and, and notice, right? Even her friends are noticing a problem. Like even the random boy she has a crush on is like trying. So I don't know. I just like, I was so horrified by this character. And I, as, as it went on and on and on in so much detail, I was like, okay, where is this coming from? Like what? So anyway, tell me, so your own experience, I want to hear more about that because there's a lot in here that, anyway, just, that was a long, not yeah, just, no question. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, it's, a re- it's really interesting. I feel like part of the sort of horrified response comes from probably a place of truth, like a place of this is a mom who maybe you don't necessarily know, but you know exists because you see, it's interesting when I was editing this book, I was teaching a virtual workshop to a great group of kids in Charlestown, Massachusetts. And they didn't know about the book, but one of them said they, you know, before the pandemic, they had a really good friend who they would sleep over their house all the time and there just wasn't enough food in the house. Mm. And so her and her mom would come up with a plan for what they were going to do when she went, this was a really good friend of her. She wanted to spend time at her house. She wanted to be in her life, but she didn't know how to navigate the situation. And I said, wow, I have a book for you because I, it, it occurred to me that it's not just the kids who live in a home 
like Sarah's home where there's 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 a lack of food and so there's trauma around food, but it's for the kids who are friends with kids like this. And since this is such a prevalent thing, it's really important for kids to know how to navigate as a friend. Like, do you, how can you be a friend to somebody and an ally to somebody? Or how can you be the parent of a kid who's a friend to somebody who's struggling and having a hard time either because of what they're going through or it's a generational thing. It's really a generational conversation. And so for me, you know, I started writing this book when I was pregnant with my daughter. So a little bit of sort of my backstory is that before I wrote Taking Up Space, I wrote two other books, both also published by Scholastic, Braced, which is about a seventh grade soccer player who has scoliosis and gets a back brace. Like I wore a back brace for two and a half years. So my trauma with, with wearing a brace actually started much earlier because I was monitored from age seven. So from seven forward, I was being followed at Boston Children's Hospital by a team of orthopedic surgeons. And so when I wrote Sue Shapiro's humiliation essay, the very first thing I ever wrote about was standing in my underwear at seven and having a team of men say there was something wrong with my body. And that feeling of like, I'm a problem that needs to be fixed. And at the same time that that was happening, I also had undiagnosed ADHD and it was 1991. So, you know, I was unruly in class and I was sent to a child psychologist for emotional disturbance. And the child psychologist said, no, she doesn't have an emotional disturbance. I put that in quotes because that's, (laughs) I did actually have an emotional, you know, emotions and ADHD are very connected. The part of your brain that controls attention also controls emotions. So I just had a lot of feelings and I didn't know what to do with them. But I was sent to a tutor who who really traumatized me. She rang a bell every time I got out of my chair. There, It was very destructive, sort of beating down of my self-esteem. So I thought there was something wrong with my body. I thought there was something wrong with my brain. And I couldn't quite figure it out because I knew I was could do certain things that other people... like I knew I was capable in my gut, but I couldn't sort of... Every day was a different storm. And it's because I was fighting a battle of undiagnosed attention deficit hyperactivity disorder that I didn't know. So on top of all that, my mom actually had one of the very first spinal fusions in the country. In 1969, she underwent a 14-hour procedure. She was in a body cast for six months. She wore a metal back brace for two and a half years. So she was completely tortured and completely traumatized at the same hospital where I was being monitored. So walking back in with me, and my dad is an orthopedic surgeon, trained at Boston Children's Hospital. So... You know, we walked into a situation that was totally triggering for her, but that she had never, she didn't even know how to, there's no way for her to process it because no one had ever talked about it. You know, her scoliosis was treated and then it was, it was never talked about again. You know, it was, it was the seventies. So they just moved on and pretended like it never happened. And when you pretend that things don't happen, haven't happened, then they build up and they create a life of their own. And so it became a complicated situation with body dysmorphia and the way that that food was sort of handled in my house, which created a bit of a food insecurity. But the truth is that my self-esteem issues came from a totally different place. They came from a place of really just not think of really thinking I was worthless, of thinking I had no value. And that sort of collided in this perfect storm of being reinforced that there's something wrong with me. And so it took me a long time to, and on top of that, you know, when you don't have an eating disorder, and I think this is a lot of what taking up space is about, when you don't have an eating disorder, which I didn't, I've never had an eating disorder. I am a person who struggled with food. Food has taken up a lot of space in my mind, which is where the title of the book came from. 
instead of thinking about other things, I was thinking about food. I was thinking about my body. I was thinking about what I've eaten, what I hadn't eaten. It was a lot of constant negative self-talk and food became another way to negative self-talk. And I think that's very common. It's common. It's complicated. It's not talked about. And it's painful, you know, the, the way that you feel about yourself and sort of weighing your value based on what you eat and what you don't eat and what size you are and what where how you fit in the world. And that struggle is what I really wanted to address in the book and the sort of untalked about struggle that nobody wants to talk about because it's everywhere and it's everyone. I mean, I read a, a study that said 75% of adult women struggle with disordered eating. And for those of you listening to the podcast who don't never heard that term disordered eating, it's, it's not a medical diagnosis. It's not in the DSM. It just, it means that, that you're preoccupied with food. Maybe you've done some restricting and binging. You're sort of overwhelmed by food. It takes up a lot of space in your mind, maybe compulsive dieting, sort of things that we consider to be common. And for me, that commonness made it so that I never asked for help. And I refused to sort of admit that there was a real problem when there was, and I needed help. And it wasn't until I actually moved to New York City at 21 and my brother, who's much younger, was diagnosed with ADHD. And I started to understand what it meant that I went to a psychiatrist and got help. And and it really started to unravel all the pieces of really destructive, self-destructive story. And, you know, I, I sort of pulled back the layers of the onion and found my way. And, and this book came you know, 15 years after I started that journey, when I was clean, I was healthy. I was in a really good mental place. I was ready to get pregnant. I was safe. I had mental health. I knew it was going to be hard, but I had no idea that pregnancy was going to trigger my adolescent trauma. It was going to trigger that feeling of being in a brace, of feeling trapped, of feeling like nobody, like I would try to communicate what I was feeling. And I felt like I was suffocating and no one understood. And Beautifully, my mom was really the only person who understood. And my husband was very supportive and, you know, did his best to put himself in my shoes. My mom really got it. She she knew what that felt like. She understood the trauma. And so that loneliness of not being able to express how I was feeling, because I wasn't taking my ADHD medicine and I was totally hyper-focused on how I felt about myself, how I felt about my body, how I felt about motherhood and the fears that I was already messing it up. And the fear that I didn't want to mess it up because there's so much evidence to support, like if you've struggled then your kids will struggle. And so ultimately I wrote because I was in so much pain and I didn't, I mean, you can only go to therapy so many hours a day. <laughs> I mean, you can go a lot. <laughs> so I proved that you can go a lot and it really did help, but writing was a place for me to put it. And so the beginning of this book came from that and I didn't want to write this book. I wanted to pretend it didn't exist. And I have a friend who was in a sorority at Penn and she said, you know, every single girl in my sorority felt this way. And like, you're, and now they're all moms and like, you're going to be able to help them and just keep writing, just keep writing. And, you know, she's a very good friend. We went to camp together and she really just, every time I'd be like, well, what do you think about this? She's just keep writing, just keep writing. And, and it somehow it ended up into this book. So. Wow. That was <laughs> That's a lot. That was like a big. <laughs> I, thank you for trusting me with your story. That's. I mean, parts of that I like was starting to tear up. I mean, the the self hatred you had, and and just how easy it is for even the most loved child to feel like that and to feel that there's something wrong. And 
the eating is just a piece. Do you, like as you as you, it's just a piece. It's like a symptom. But it's it's how do you find, how do you know, and how do you like? It took you so long, and like all the people out there who it's, you know, it's as you said, it's so common. I don't know. It's like <laughs> I find it very overwhelming. Like, there, how do you affect change and make so many people feel better? And maybe it's just hopeless. And and you know, then again, like. Woe is me. Like, you know, some of the, some kids can't even have a family that can afford food. Like that wasn't the situation in this book, right? It was that the mom chose not to buy the food, which was like almost like at first I thought it was going to be about not being able to afford the food. That's why they only had like two things in the house. But so. No, and I think that's actually what you just said is like exactly brilliant and perfect is there's this, especially right now, like pandemic comparative suffering of this, like, well, I should feel lucky and I should feel grateful and we have enough. And like, yes, you can feel lucky and grateful and so thankful for everything you have. And on the very, at the very same time, be in pain. Yep. And I think I really learned that that's one of the things I've, the sort of self-kindness that I've given myself is like, and that I, I think that that's where the hope is, is that you can dedicate yourself to helping other people and you can feel lucky and grateful for what you have. And you can also have had a hard time and be struggling and need help. And I think that ultimately for me, that's really the message of taking up space is it's okay that everybody who's in pain and listen, we're all in pain right now. A lot of disappointment has happened. It's been pain and suffering and hurt and loss and disappointment and mourning. And so there's a lot of feelings and it's okay for everybody in the whole world right now to be in pain and for that pain to exist, even if somebody else has it worse. Thank you. And I, (laughs) no, I, I mean, you should like be a therapist now, by the way, <laughs> but you should take all that investment that you put into your own therapy and start getting it back. on Because <laughs> it's so true. I mean, I wrote this piece forever ago called too lucky to cry on Easter. Cause I was like sitting on my bathroom floor sobbing and I was like, what is wrong with me? Like, I'm so lucky. I'm so lucky in so many ways. Like why am why can I not stop crying? You know, that what's wrong with me? And then and you put that on top of everything else, you know? So yeah, the fact that there's a baseline level of luck and appreciation and and privilege and all of that is is so important to be to recognize and to not take for granted, but it doesn't mean that like pain is not pain. Physical, emotional, I mean, we're all just people trying to get through the day. No, it's it's true. And I think like, I think being able to recognize other people's pain and hear their pain for what it is also frees you up to be able to hear your own pain and to listen to your own voice. And I, I, so one of the reasons that I, like I write own voices books, which means they're written from my own experience. So it's fiction. I never play basketball. I was never like a superstar basketball player, but I really did experience a lot of the feelings that are in this book. And I think one of the reasons I always liked reading own voices books as a kid and why I write them now is that I think there's a lot to be learned from putting yourself in somebody else's shoes. It gives you empathy for other people, but also really gives you, it gives you like, lets you look at yourself and say like, oh, I'm allowed to be in pain too. And I'm allowed to just creates a lot of kindness when you can really just engage with somebody else's story and live in their life for a little while. So if people are listening and they're thinking, you know, what is an own voices book? I have one to recommend. Jerry Craft's book, which I don't have right here. His new book is called Class Act. 
And I just think he writes graphic novels. I just think it's, it, for me, it was such an important story and it really helped me see a spectrum of pain. And there are so many amazing own voices, middle grade novels. I mean, it's one of the reasons that, you know, adult memoirs are so popular. This like ability to put yourself in, in somebody else's experience. It really, op- I think it opens your heart. That's literally what I do all day long is I sit here. <laughs> I was thinking that this morning <laughs> because I was interviewing somebody else this morning before you, not to, now I feel like I'm cheating on you with my other interview. But, <laughs> and I was sitting there listening to her story and I was thinking, wow, like I've now heard like hundreds, like almost a thousand, like this never gets old for me. Like everybody's story. Therapy practice. Like I'm just, <laughs> I know, I feel like uh, we have like some sort of kindred, something going on here. Like it just never gets old for me. Hearing people's stories, reading people's stories, like talking to people and hearing their stories. Like I have, I'm so interested, but maybe other people aren't as fundamentally interested. Like I think we are. I think it's just really hard to let ourselves and give ourselves space. I mean, I think that that's really what your message is with the book is like, moms do have time. We have time and we have space. We just have to let ourselves yeah, give it to ourselves. Like, you know, make, create a little space for it. It doesn't have to be, you know, hours and hours and hours. It could just be a little bit. Yeah. And maybe this is our space. <laughs> yeah. No, I think I love that. <laughs> Okay. So just practically, are you writing any more books now? Like what's on your horizon? So I'm working on something that is one of the themes of the book. So in addition to being like a basketball book of a mother-daughter relationship, that's very complicated. Is it, there's a YouTube cooking competition. I'm not participating in YouTube cooking competition, but it's like so fun. And I had such a good time doing it. And the other piece of it is that, you know, we really get to see the mother-daughter love through their connection to books and their connection to mystery novels in particular. They read and they talk and connect. And that's a way that their love sort of, we can see that this is a mother who's doing her best and trying really hard to, to love. And it's confusing because food is a way that we love each other. And so I'm a big, I'm obsessed with mystery novels. I just think that mystery, I watch every mystery, every British BBC murder mystery that has ever been created. I've seen it. So I'm working on a mystery series right now, but I can't really like disclose anything about it because it's so top secret and it's, but it's really good. And I'm so excited. (laughs) That's great. Oh, that's exciting. Uh, Yeah. So that's what I'm, I've been like secretly working on that throughout the process of getting, taking up space into shape and promoting it. It's very exciting. I'm doing my daughter's birthday is coming up and we're having a nailed it party where we're literally, our friends are all coming and we're trying to make the cake. Like we're going to have like a professional, like nice cake made. And then all we're going to have stations and we're like four teams are going to try to make the cake. And then my other kids are all going to be the judges. (laughs) I love that. That's so awesome. So anyway, for them. I love anything where like, there's a judge, like a, a very part, like a very biased judge involved. Yes. Yes. It's perfect. It's going to be really fun. So anyway, the whole YouTube cooking thing and the, you know, uh, oh my gosh, this book like made me hungry. Now I'm going to have to go have lunch and, you know, all the sizzling food and, you know, the cute boy who knows how to cook. I'm all. I know. That Benny. I know. I'm like, I love him. How is he so perfect? I don't know what you know that way. Well, Allison, I loved talking to you and I feel like I just like went to coffee with a girlfriend or something. So thank you for that. <laughs> and your book was fantastic and almost like a cautionary tale of sorts, you know, like, and a good reminder to all moms out there to try to get their own shops in order, you know? So, yeah. And I think it's a good way for 
for parents to start a conversation. So if like you're a parent who's struggling and you're, you know, even if it's a secret struggle and it's a small struggle, it's a good way to, this book has all the tools you need to sort of open up a conversation with your kids and say like, let's talk about this. And it's okay that like, maybe I'm having a hard time and maybe you're having a hard time and maybe we're all having a hard time. So just so parents who are listening, you know, know that this is out there, taking up space is out there and you can use it as a resource. And I loved talking to you. This was so amazing and so grateful. All right. Well, we'll have to keep it going in person. All right. Have a great day. Thanks so much. Okay. Bye. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight. Don't forget to follow the private support group at Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight on Instagram. Thanks.